On this episode of Trading Camp, we interview Aisha Tarrant. Aisha talks about her extensive career in finance and banking, discusses what it takes to make it in such a tough industry, and provides details and context around the Silicon Valley bank collapse. Trading Camp has partnered with Elite Trader Funding, a proprietary trading firm focused on giving traders the opportunity to profit from the markets without risking their own capital. ETF offers a range of evaluations which test your abilities as a trader. When you pass, you'll be able to choose from funded accounts ranging from $10,000 to $300,000. The only risk is a monthly flat fee. The ETF community provides an excellent learning environment and networking opportunities for those serious about taking their game to the next level. We are excited to offer our listeners 40% off of any trading evaluation on ETF site except for Fast Track. Use code 40TCP and follow the link in the show notes or simply head over to EliteTraderFunding.com to start your journey as a funded trader today. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Scooter, the next generation of trading tools that will replace everything you know about trading. Built by engineers for the retail trader, Rocket Scooter's revolutionary algorithm is the first of its kind. It uncovers institutional positions and reveals market maker risk and hedging in real time using their AI scanner and algorithmic charting. Rocket Scooter has invented 15 unique indicators that predict high volume before it happens, allowing you to visualize price levels where big money is most interested. There's nothing like it. To see how Rocket Scooter is changing the game for retail traders, check out their three-month pro trial. Right now, they are offering three months of Rocket Scooter Pro for only $35 a month, knocked down from the original price of $179 a month. Take advantage of this monster deal by heading over to the link in the show notes and get started using Rocket Scooter today. This episode is brought to you by Kane Capital, a trading community over 25,000 strong featuring live trading alerts and educational content. Link in the notes to join for free today. It's so hard for me to sit back here in this studio looking at a guy out here hollering my name when last year I spent more money on spilled liquor in bars from one side of this world to the other than you made. You're talking to the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, woo, wheeling, dealing. going on everybody welcome back to tcp we're ready to go episode 67 about to get underway we've got a very exciting guest with us on this show excited to meet her before we bring in aisha Tarek. noah what's going on alejandro what's good i'm very excited to get aisha on the pod today we've heard great things about her from one of our favorites uh markets and mayhem um and so i have no doubt that she will be able to provide um, some great insight today. So I'm excited to get into it. Absolutely. Aisha, without further ado, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. As Noah mentioned, we have heard some really awesome things about you. So I guess the expectations are high. <laughs> Markets and mayhem kind of does that. But yeah, it's awesome to have you on the show. And we understand that you are currently in Dubai. What time is it there locally? I am. It's just past 8 p.m. actually. So I'm about eight hours away. Noon here in New York. All right. So I see you tweeting. We just started following each other. I see you tweeting constantly. How does that work? Because I mean, the market closes super late for you at around midnight. 
How is it, you know, working with people who are eight hours behind? So it's been interesting. Actually, I'm quite uh, glad that the clocks have changed recently because prior to that, it was 1 a.m. And when it's earnings season, it's like (laughs) so difficult for me because I have to stay up and watch the earnings, go through some of the numbers, post it out for our people. So, you know, by the time I go to bed, uh, it's like 2.30 in the morning. But then the good thing is I get to wake up a little bit later as well. So that, you know, I compensate. Uh, Aisha, we want to ask you now just about your background, simply how you got involved in the markets, what your career has looked like, how you've gotten to uh, the point in your career that you're sitting at today. Sure. So, you know, after college, I was looking around for a job and I actually studied marketing. I did a double major in marketing, so nothing to do with finance. I was hell-bent on not doing anything with finance. I never wanted to get into finance. Um, And then there was a job at a bank and it was a good job. And I decided, you know what, let's let's try it. You know, it can't be that bad. Um, And turns out it wasn't so bad. I spent the next 10 years at the Standard Chartered Bank. I, um, you know, learned a lot over there. I was a corporate banker. So what we used to do is we used to look at companies, we used to study companies, and then lend to them, obviously. So it was a great run. And after that, I did some, I moved to another bank within the region, um, again, doing corporate banking, but this time as well, um, you know, financing real estate on behalf of corporate. So that was pretty interesting. It gave me like a nice little view into, you know, the real estate world as well. And uh, from there, one of my clients hired me to head up his treasury division. And um, that was very interesting, <laughs> too. So it's been it's been quite a run, you know. <clears throat> so I managed his money for a while. And you, you have, you know, significant wealth in the region. So it's qu- it gets quite, you know, uh, massive. Um, so I looked at his banking. I looked at managing his assets, hospitality, real estate, and listed equities. So that's basically where I started to get more and more into the market. Because prior to that, when I was in banking, because I had inside information, I couldn't really trade. It was it was very hard for me to trade. If I if I wanted to buy shares or stocks, I'd have to hold on to it for months before I could sell it. So if anything happened in the market, I couldn't I couldn't get out of my position because it had to be long-term holdings, more investment kind of thing. So when I was free from that world, I started trading. I started trading on behalf of my boss as well and, you know, uh, it, it it was it was a lot of fun. Um, I spent some time with him almost three years, and thereafter I left and I started my own consulting firm uh, in 2019. And since then, I've just basically been consulting. Last year, I joined Mayhem and his partner Horse in Trader Aid, um, and uh, yeah, here you see me now. Awesome. So I think it's interesting that you started by saying I did not want anything to do with finance. Here you are uh, nearly two decades later with a load of experience in finance, yes. which is um, it's really, that's really awesome. Um, so obviously you have quite the background in uh, banking and we're already getting into it, the Silicon Valley banking situation. So <laughs> this is what everybody sort of wants to hear and know about. And I think it's very important that we're having you on the show. Uh, This is going to be a good learning experience for me uh, because 
I have, I'm trying to find this middle ground between tuning out what I feel is a lot of noise, but also trying to learn from those who, uh, you know, are like yourself with an experienced background who do know what they're talking about. And especially for us, when we go on Twitter, and as you know, FinTwit is full of a lot of garbage. So for once, I'm going to open my ears here and be receptive to, um, you know, trying to understand what's really going on. And I think this is, again, a good opportunity for our listeners as well. So if you just want to dive into the situation itself, and then we can talk about, you know, how it can impact uh, things moving forward. Sure. Um, So before I start, let me just say I'm not a bank analyst. Um, So because Banks operate very differently from corporates, right? Their balance sheets are different. Their financial statements are different. They're presented in a different way. And therefore, it's very hard and challenging for a regular person to wrap their head around what's going in a a bank, right? So I've been studying these statements maybe for four or five years. I mean, I, I I know some of it, but I'm not an expert analyst, right? But because I've been studying balance sheets for like 19 years now, so I think I can do it some justice, let's say. So I, I hope I can explain what happened. Um, and what happened was actually quite unique because when you think about a bank going bust, the first thing you think about is um, they've lent out too much money and people aren't paying back the loans. And therefore, there's a lot of defaults in the bank, and which is why we monitor the level of defaults, right? So you look at whether loans are being defaulted on, because that's where we feel the risk is with banks. We always think that customers or companies will default and the bank will not get its money back, and therefore the bank will go belly up. That's usually what happens. Or the bank is trading too much, taking on too much risk in trading, as was the case with Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and therefore they have these positions that will blow up, right? But when this started happening with Silicon Valley Bank, it was pretty interesting because people were talking about treasuries blowing up. And you think treasuries blowing up? Treasuries are like no default. They have, you know, the full faith of the government, right? They're not supposed to default. So what's going on here? So there was a lot of misinformation I was looking at Twitter and I was saying, you know, what What are they talking about? There's something wrong here. It can't be like treasuries blowing up. But what did actually happen was this bank was focused on um, venture capital and startup companies, right? Now, we all know with startups, I mean, you run a startup, I run a startup. We, we know with startups, there's a lot of cash burn, particularly if what you're doing is a product, right? So a product or, you know, something like Roku, for example, you know, some kind of tech product, there's a lot of cash burn in the beginning. We've seen these stories, we've, we've, we've seen movies, we've seen all of this. And so over the last one year, the cash burn level became higher and higher, right? So these companies, they started, they had a great time in 2020 and 2021. There was a lot of cash coming in. Say, let's take Zoom, for example. They made a lot of money. They did really well in those two years because of the pandemic or whatever. But thereafter, in 2022, we saw the stock price take a hit. And this company stopped making profits the way they were, right? So the the level of cash started to come down. But these guys still have to pay 
you know, their salaries. They still have to pay for R&D. You know that their operating expenses are pretty high. So they have to burn through cash. So they went to the bank and they wanted to take their cash out. They needed cash to pay their, you know, expenses. And because this bank had most of their customers were concentrated in this area, right, in the VC space, in the startup space, they had a lot of people coming to them asking for cash. Okay. So now I know that my customers are very high-risk customers. I know my customers will come asking for cash. I should know this, right? But for some reason, the bank, I would say, didn't update their KYC or they didn't update their transactional levels. And this is something we do at the bank. As a corporate relationship manager, every three months, I would go to my clients and say, hey, has your risk profile changed? Okay, are you going to have extra needs for cash, right? I'm supposed to know all of this. I'm supposed to know this and I'm supposed to monitor this every three months. I don't know what happened there. I don't know why they didn't realize that their customers would require more cash. What they did, they took all these deposits. So if you look at their balance sheet, on the face of it, their balance sheet looks perfectly fine, by the way. So to someone who's not looking for it. So I went looking for the problems after I knew that this bank was blowing up. So I could find it. But for someone who's not readily looking for problems, it's it wasn't very apparent. So it's not, unless you are a very savvy analyst and you're reading every line of the balance sheet, and this is why we should, but it would be very difficult to spot problems with this bank because they ma managed to keep all the levels you know, so we have certain levels in the bank and they managed to keep these levels right. What they did is they had a huge deposit base because they did take deposits from customers, right? And they put these deposits in long-term bonds. So they had a timing mismatch. And it's something that we sort of call an asset liability mismatch. So they took deposits, which are short-term, you have a checking account, which means you can go and ask money from the bank anytime. So ideally, when I know this, I should keep this in a short-term fund, right? Either a short-term bond or a short-term deposit or something short-term. It shouldn't be long-term. Unfortunately, during the time when you know yields were zero, these guys wanted to make a little bit more money on the, on the deposits they had. And therefore they put them all in longer term bonds because it was only the longer term bonds that were giving you some kind of return versus the short term. Because the short term was zero. We were at zero rates, right? And they didn't move it. They kept it there because they were long-term bonds and the money was locked over there. So when push came to shove and these clients came asking for cash, they didn't have liquid cash to give out to these clients. And that's where the problem started. In order to get that cash, they had two op or they had three options. Either you borrow from another bank, okay, or you sell your bonds, or you raise equity. They tried the second two. So because it was the time frame was very short, and this is the problem in this day and age, right? Because we can do everything with the push of a button. So we can make online transfers. We can ask for money like this, 
it's no longer that you go to the branch and you say, hey, I want money in a week's time. Everything is instant now. So the pace at which this happened was very interesting. So people just started coming, asking for cash, asking for cash. And these guys, their only option was to sell what they had on their balance sheet. And when they sold this, they had to sell it at, at a loss. Because don't forget, they bought these bonds in 2020, 2021, right? When the bond prices were here because the yields were at zero. And now they're having to sell it when the values have dropped. So as the Fed raised rates, your bond values drop. And now they have, they had to sell this, I think it was 26 or $27 billion of bonds for a huge loss. And so when that loss hit, people started to take notice. They tried to raise cash. They tried to do an equity offering to raise cash. Unfortunately, by then, people started selling, like selling the shares, right? So people started shorting, people started selling, people wanted to get out. Suddenly people realized that, hey, if they're selling these bonds and taking such a big loss, like the contagion within the bank and within the people who held the bank's shares, it started. So people just started wanting to get out of it. And you saw the share price just come down and down and down. And it came to such a level that they couldn't raise equity anymore because it, it took such a hit. Nobody was going to buy their equity when everybody's selling, right? You can't issue shares if everybody wants to get the hell out of your <laughs> shares. So now you have a situation where you can't meet your or you can't meet your deposits. When people hear this, the first thing they say is, I need to get my money out of there. Oh God, it's going to go, you know, the bank's going to go bankrupt. I need to get my cash out. Otherwise, I'll lose all my money. All, I mean, you think cash at a bank is safe, right? And if you think that it's not going to be safe, the first thing you do is you run to the bank and get your money out. And so all of this kind of snowballed. Right. So this is why they call a run on the bank, because it starts running and people run to the bank to get money out. And unfortunately, when a bank run starts, it's very hard to stop it. And obviously, all the news and the media and people calling like Peter, Peter Thiel and all these people asking others to take their money out of the bank. None of this helped. So all of this sparked, you know, even further panic. And people just started to take their money out and the bank collapsed. And it, to be fair, I, I, I sort of characterize it as being very greedy because they could have paid more on their deposits and attracted further deposits, but they didn't pay a lot on their deposits. They tried to keep their profits high, right? So they didn't want to pay too much in deposits. And the second thing is they didn't want to take action, even though they knew this might be coming. And they should have. They could have hedged their bonds. They could have done a great many things. So it's also a matter of poor internal controls. So they were, I think they probably thought that they were too big to fail. Unfortunately, they weren't. Right. Yeah. I mean, before the failure, I think they were, what, the 16th largest bank in, in, the, uh, in the country. And so, I mean, it, it, I definitely understand that framework where that, that standpoint where it's like, we are too big to fail. Every trader knows, and I speak from personal experience, when you are first learning to trade, it is extremely easy to blow up an account. 
A big part of the reason why new traders struggle is the stress of risking their hard-earned capital while they're still learning. Agreed. And I personally think that trading through a prop trading firm is the perfect way for traders to learn without risking their money. That's why Trading Camp is partnered with Elite Trader Funding, a prop firm with a mission to educate and provide capital to traders. From trading with established risk management protocols to not having to fight theta decay trading options, there are so many advantages to trading with ETF. Unlike other prop firms, ETF has transparent fee and payout structures. Combine that with excellent customer service and an educational discord that fosters proper trading habits, and it's a no-brainer. TCP is excited to offer our listeners 40% off of any trading evaluation on ETF's site except for Fast Track. Use code 40TCP, that's 40TCP, and follow the link in the show notes or simply head over to EliteTraderFunding.com to start your journey as a funded trader. Just like for a quick recap, your your analysis there, they had a bunch of money come into the bank. They took that money and they went and invested it in bonds. Long-term bonds. Long-term bonds. Right. Specifically, yeah. specifically 10-year bonds, yeah. correct? Yeah. Specifically 10-year bonds where your money is locked up for, for a, a, a long period of time. The value of those bonds went down as mm-hmm. the uh, federal funds rate went up, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the the yield on those bonds goes up, the price on those bonds comes down, and now you have a situation where people are bringing money out of your bank. You need to raise some money, so let's sell our bonds. They lose yeah. a bunch of money doing that, and that's where everybody freaks out. This bank is insolvent. Let's go take our money out of the bank, and that makes the whole situation worse and sort of just spirals um, out of control. Pretty wild story. I mean, and and this is something that, you know, I was talking to Alejandro about and, and the rest of the guys over the weekend where if this isn't like, I'm I'm similar to you in the sense that like th- this stuff like excites me. Like I like to like, I was, I was kind of like following it like the entire weekend. But I feel like if you're not somebody who like closely follows, I guess, like macroeconomics, like you don't really understand the significance of sort of what happened. And like this was this this was like a really big deal. Like this was this is a massive deal. So so much so that the the um the Fed and the Treasury had to come together to to basically solve it over the weekend. So what do you think about um the way that Jerome Powell and the Treasury stepped in over the weekend? What do you think about the decisions that they made um to sort of combat what was going on with with SVB to prevent some contagion? So look, I, I know there's a lot of political views on this, but. I don't obviously, I'm not from the US, I don't do politics. Um, but I think they did the right thing because they sort of backstopped the banking crisis, right? The problem is, look, even with Silicon Valley Bank, something could have been done. You didn't necessarily have to have a bank run. Do you know what I mean? I mean, they sold the bonds all right for a loss. They could have un- gone through some pressure. But the whole problem was because of these people and media and everything saying, get your money out, get your money out. And now because even all of us, we have everything on our phones, right? So for us to even sell our shares took like two minutes or like a minute, right? So I I think we're living in different times. And I think they've realized that for them to preempt any further stress in the system, is very important. They know that some banks are going to go out of business. Look, it happened during Volcker's time. When you raise rates like this, it's bound to happen. So this crisis wasn't a banking crisis, but raising rates can start a banking crisis in various ways. Not just be- this was a little unique. 
by the way, because this could have been prevented. But there will be further banks where you see defaults, where you see customers not being able to pay back interest, right? Because the interest has gone so high, where you see uh, real estate, for example, is a very, very scary area right now. And I, and I say this because I used to work in real estate and I was in real estate during 2018 when they started to raise rates. And I remember how scary it had become because we are pegged to the dollar over here. So our rates move with the dollar rates as well. So when the Fed raises rates, ours automatically goes up as well. And I remember how scary it had become because you have real estate as collateral against your loans, right? So you know you're safe. But unfortunately, when rates start to go up, your collateral value starts to come down. That's just how you value real estate. And when your values come down, say you've taken $50 against $100 worth of real estate, but now your real estate is worth $40, which means you have a loan, $10 of loan that is not backed by anything right? Plus, interest rates are going up. And so previously, you used to pay like $5 in interest. Now you're paying like $15, $20 in interest, right? It's gone up massively. And so everything combined, this could actually spark a banking crisis because there's a huge amount of real estate that is financed in the US and all over the world. It's not just there, it's everywhere. And the, honestly, if you ask me, this is what scares me because real estate is the most financed asset in the world and values are coming down. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you saw that Blackstone already defaulted on one of their bonds uh, in Europe, right? And someone like Blackstone, I mean, perhaps they had other reasons, but this is, you know, it, it all comes down to the same issue, rates going up asset values coming down. So, and it, and it becomes a very scary situation. And so I think what they did was right because we don't need more people to say that there's gonna be a run on this bank or that bank or that bank. And we don't need people to start massive, you know, it's, it's not even gonna be panic, it's gonna be hysteria. People are just going to go crazy if they think that they're, you know, they'll lose all their money because you put all your money in the bank. No one keeps cash on hand, right? So it, it's a bit scary. And I think they took the right steps. I know this will have repercussions, but I still think for now, this was the right decision. Could you explain what those steps were that the Fed took to back the banks? What it was that the, the action that they took? Right. So basically, they, they, of course, they're saying that, you know, deposits will be covered. We know that, right? So previously, when uh, when the situation first broke out, everybody said that deposits will be insured only up to 250000 And that's the case. That's the law, basically. Um, so you shouldn't be actually putting more than $250,000 in one single account. You should actually spread your cash around. Um, but then they came out and said, you know what, we're going to sort of make sure that all the depositors get all of their money back. Investors, not so much. So, you know, the shareholders basically might get zero. Um, 
creditors will get their money back after the sale of the assets, whatever the assets in the bank are. And I'm talking about Silicon Valley Bank here. And then on the broader scale, what they did was they sort of said that anybody who is holding treasuries, you know, um, they are safe. So th this, you know, collapse in value of treasuries, they, they're going to backstop that to a certain extent. And the other thing they said was, um, I'm trying to remember, oh, the discount window. So the Fed will lend to anyone who is in need of emergency cash. And that's something that the Fed does because when we studied economics a long time ago, um, the central bank was always called the lender of last resort. So they are the lender of last resort. So if something goes belly up with these banks or if these banks come under stress of cash again, they can go to the Fed's discount window and borrow cash from the Fed. Right. So, and because and, even as you mentioned before, right, as like, this isn't like a unique thing that that happened, not necessarily with SVB, but in terms of like, when you get your money, you put it into bonds. Maybe they did the wrong thing in terms of like the duration of their bonds. You have the duration mismatch, like you mentioned, but they're not the only ones sitting on losses in their bond portfolio after 2022, right? I mean, 2022 is a historically bad year for bonds. Anybody who had bonds last year, and a lot of banks have a lot of bonds, is sitting on losses, right? And so they're not necessarily susceptible to the same level as SVB. But when you start to look at the balance sheets of some banks and you say, okay, this bank kind of looks like SVB in terms of not only their their capital structure, but also the people that they service, right? Because um, SVB, like you said, was really focusing on more um, startups and, and tech entrepreneurs and things like that. You have several other banks, just like SBNY, which they closed on Sunday. SBNY was known, renowned really for their, their banking to the crypto sector in particular and how um, you know, they were they were willing to they were willing lenders and, and a, a really important bank within the crypto ecosystem. You have um, they're like they're not the only ones, essentially, SVB that are having this problem in the sense that, you know, the, the, the bond the bond values have been depressed. Right. And so what the Fed did is essentially said, OK, anybody who is in that situation, we are going to be able to provide a little bit of support. And the whole purpose of that, like you said, was sort of just to to um, add confidence, right? So that, you know, people didn't wake up on Monday morning and run to their bank. You know, if it wasn't a big four, if it wasn't JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs, anything lower than that, didn't run to their bank and immediately pull it out, correct? And you would need to do that, right? I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, Noah. I mean, all these banks, they do have various things they're sitting on, not just bonds, but as I said, real estate as well. They're sitting on loans that could be shaky, you know, because with the... As much as we would like to think it's not, but the f financial conditions have tightened massively, right? We've never seen a tightening like this ever before. This is super aggressive. 75, 75, 75. It, it's, it's been like quite a ride and it, it's quite unprecedented. And after like 15 years of easy money, low rates, fun times, you know, you go from zero right up to 475, like what, in less than a year? It's not even been a year, right? It's it's so fast. And I, I think while it seems like a long time for us in the market, as we've seen our portfolios come down or our longs come down, let's say, it, it's actually quite fast. And for banks, you know, they take time to move. They take time to, you know, set up defenses. A lot of these, and, you know, I'll tell you another interesting thing. I was looking at this chart, or actually I posted this chart once. 
Most of the people working in the banking sector now are young people. They haven't seen inflation and they haven't seen rates like this. So it's very hard for them to fathom what's next because you have a double whammy here. You have rates going up and you have inflation high. So it's, it's a difficult situation. Most of us, I mean, we probably, we were babies when this last happened. I was a baby when it last happened, right? In the early 80s. So it, it's, it's not something you can blame anyone for. I think people needed to move faster. Some banks did, some banks did not. People like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, they definitely have much stronger controls, <clears throat> much better policies. They run, you know, much tighter, let's say. And so they've implemented all their policies. But for the smaller banks, many of them don't know that, or I wouldn't say don't know, but they haven't taken action fast enough. And the Fed probably does recognize this because it is a very unique time. We're taking bits and pieces of a lot of different crises and putting them together, let's say. you know. So we have bits of the 2008 crisis. We have bits of the dot-com. We have bits of you know, the 80s, late 70s, early 80s. So it's, it's, it's a mis- mix and match of a variety of different things. So it's a new scenario. It's a new situation. And it's going to take a little bit of time to adapt. That was that was one thing that I kept seeing a ridiculous amount on Twitter this week was this is not a repeat of of 2008 and and how you know things are a little bit different. It's not necessarily the quality of the assets that's the problem, more so duration mismatch like you talked about. So what you know all of that given given all that we just covered uh, regarding SVB regarding um, the Fed's reaction. What do you see going forward as far as impact on the equity markets, right? A lot of our listeners um, are, whether they're day traders, swing traders, um, they trade stocks, right? And so the 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 bond market talk, the bank talk can be a bit foreign um, to them. Why does it matter, right? Why should I pay attention to that? What does that mean for me on a day-to-day basis um, as I try and, you know, nav- successfully navigate the markets? What do you, how, what impact, if any, do you see um, this whole situation having on the equity market in particular? So as of today, it would seem there's no impact. All the banks are up today. <laughs> the entire market is flying. But look, I, I think the main takeaway from this is that things are going to get tougher. I mean, I know people have called me a bear, but it's just, I, I'm I'm not a bear bear. I'm trying to be careful. I'm trying to alert people to what might happen. I mean, and look at the speed with which it happened, right? I swear I never thought it would go down in 24 hours. I've never seen anything like this. It was so fast. I mean, it was insane. Like three banks going down in less than a week. It was what, three, four days, Silvergate went? Yeah, four days, I think, from Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, it's crazy. Um, so this, this, it, and it could have sparked a contagion. It did not, thankfully, but it could have sparked a contagion. So my whole point is, look, I know there are traders who trade in the short term and you look at things day to day, which is fine. That's great. I, I trade day to day as well, a part of my portfolio. But at the same time, I would say be careful. And you know this better than me. You guys are better traders than me probably because you're looking at the market every day. And you know, like, you know, we we just have to be really careful with the volatility in the market. 
And we have so many different things coming in. Like, so we have the zero DTEs. We have, you know, so many different issues pushing the market one way or the other. And so volatility still remains high. And when it goes below 20, it's at 17. 17 is still high. If you look at it historically, 17 is still quite high on the VIX, right? And so I think we just need to be very careful on a day-to-day basis, for sure. Keep our position small, put in stop losses. Just be careful and alert. In the longer term, I think we need to look at earnings. And this is something that I've been talking about a lot, you know, that we're entering an earnings recession. And because of all these banks, I think I forgot the term completely. So Noah was mentioning the equity markets. My question, and I'm hearing a lot of talk about this now, is that people are expecting because of the banking crisis, they're expecting the Fed to pause, maybe raise rates um, by another 25 basis points in March. But a lot of people are now expecting a pause. Um, And I want to get your take on whether or not that would be bullish for the equity markets in the short term, and also whether or not you see that being realistic. So I I don't think it's realistic. CPI came in at 6% today. Sure, it's, it's declining. You know, the rate of change is still okay, but core CPI was still high. The reason CPI came in lower was mainly because of the SPR release. And we don't have a lot more to go with the SPR release. So, uh, you know, oil prices may resume going up again, and that will be pressure on the CPI once again. And then you have China opening up. So we have all these inflationary factors still in the system. Right. So I don't think the Fed is going to. First of all, let me say they're not going to cut rates. I don't think so. This is my opinion. I could be wrong, but I don't think they are going to cut rates. Cutting rates will put them into a massive bind. I mean, inflation will just soar if they cut rates, whether they will pause rates or not. For sure, they're going to pause. So we thought that they will raise rates three more times and then pause. So it's going to be March. And I think we we said somewhere around July they will pause rates. So I I do believe that they will pause in July. Now, the question is whether they raise another 50 or not in March. So given everything that's happened, they may not raise another 50. So everybody was saying that CPI is still very hot. PC is still very hot. So they're going to raise 50. I think they still maintain it at 25 basis points. So I, I still think that we can probably reach five and a half on the upper side. So we're at 4.75 right now. So that would mean three more rate hikes. And I still think we're getting there. I I, I think five and a half on the upper bound is quite plausible. We could even see 5.75, but I think five and a half is like where I would say that's where the Fed might pause. They have to take inflation down. They have to. They have to conquer inflation. They have to break it. There's no other way. Hey, Noah, what do moving averages, RSI, and MACD all have in common? They're all lagging indicators from the 70s with weak ability to predict future price action. Exactly. Modern retail traders need modern trading tools. That's why we've partnered with Rocket Scooter, an artificial intelligence and algorithmic charting tool that predicts where high volume will occur before it happens. That's right. 
Rocket Scooter's 15 unique indicators help visualize in real time where institutional players are interested on almost any stock and gives you a clear-cut game plan for how to take advantage of the underlying mechanics of the market. A platform like that probably costs a ton of money. Right now, they're offering three months of Rocket Scooter Pro for only $35 a month, knocked down from the original price of $179 a month. Take advantage of this monster deal by heading over to the link in the show notes and getting started using Rocket Scooter today. I mean, I guess depending where you want to start looking at it, I mean, then really nothing has changed, right? I mean, from I'm talking from like early February because I know in March um, the markets essentially were pricing in the market. The markets were ridiculous. They were, I think they were pricing in what like one more hike and then cuts as early as like late summer, early fall, and then you had the you had the um, the January jobs report. Everybody freaks out. They begin to price in. They go way over. They had, um, I believe, they had eighty percent chance of like fifty bips in March. Um, but like for a, for a small window when things were like rational and made sense, they um, were essentially pricing in three more quarter point um, quarter basis point hikes up until you know one more in March, one more. I believe that they um, don't have one in April. One more in May. One more in June. Like you said, that stop in July. So more or less, we're back to where we started. Right, the, where we started this whole. Um, situation. I mean, even after it, it, it's just weird to see for me anyways, I mean, you we're used to seeing equity markets be so reactionary where it's like one day the sky is falling and then the next day everything is great. Like I'm, I'm used to seeing that by now, um, you know, as, as a trader in stocks, you just don't usually see that in the bond market quite as much, which I think is what has people who are experienced like yourself sort of pumping the brakes because that like, that's not usual. Right. I mean, I've seen it so many times from, from people that I respect a lot on, you know, whether it's Finn Twitter, whether it's in my own circle of, of people that I talk to talking about just exactly how wild the last month has been, um, you know, for, uh, the bond market and for, um, where, you know, that smart money people like to call the bond market smart money, where that smart money thinks, um, you know, the Fed is going to go with rates and where the market is going to go. And I, I think there's that level of uncertainty, um, at least from what I understand, seems a bit unprecedented. Would you agree or no? So do you mean that, you know, the bond market is showing a lot of uncertainty? Yes. Is that is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, look at, look at the yield curve, right? We hit 110 basis points on the a negative 110 basis points on the yield curve. And so that should tell you what, what the bond market is thinking. So we have the shorter duration, which is like, you know, the Fed pumping rates, but then the longer end of the market is what the economy is basically thinking, right? And so when you have this mismatch in the yield curve, um, they're signaling a recession and we're definitely going to see things get more difficult. Look, the Fed cannot um, bring down inflation without inducing a recession or at least a very near recession, let's say. So you might Maybe we get by without a minus figure. Maybe we are like at 0% or something. But growth is going to be very, very low. And having a very low level of growth for a longer time is just as bad as having a recession, honestly. Sometimes even worse because breaking out of that very low level of growth is going to be very difficult. And this is going to affect the equity market, the bond market, and everything. Because if you have a recession, nothing does well in a recession, right? And your equities are bound to fall. And 
I think before before we started this topic, I was talking about the earnings recession, and I've been talking about the earnings recession. I think for six months now. I mean, I guess I was early, but last quarter we saw earnings come down year on year, so we saw negative earnings, negative earnings growth rather. And this quarter we're pricing in negative earnings growth as well. So Q1 2023, and so when you have an earnings recession. So back to back two quarters of negative growth, um, you're bound to have a recession in the economy as well because companies make up the economy. Companies make up the bond market, majority of the bond market, and the stock market. So where do you think things are going? I mean, I I, I did the math. According to me, we we're going to see 3,400 on the S and P, and that's being generous. I've seen much worse. So that's that yeah. is. Generous for sure. So, and I um, did it from like a fundamental perspective, right? So, not charts based and stuff like that. So, but I know people who look at charts and are saying the same thing. So, basically, whether you look at it from a technical or a fundamental or a macro perspective, when you bring all these three things together, you kind of get that same number down there. And it, it, it is a little worrying. That being said, and you mentioned that you do some trading yourself are there any parts of the equity market that you find attractive so there are a lot of parts of the equity market i find attractive but so for now look i don't think we're at a place where we are ready to buy so if if you're if if what we're all thinking is right and the equity market is going to 3400 shouldn't we wait for better prices i mean so if I'm trading now, I'm trading short term and I'm shorting stuff for sure. When the market goes up like this, like crazy, I'll, I'll, I'll put, get, get in some shorts and, you know, I'll take them off when the market goes down. Day before, I, I think on Friday, I was buying a little bit as well. And these are various things. So I've, I'll buy some staples. I'll buy some energy. Um, I'll buy, I, I, I'm trying to stay away from tech. So I'm using Texas a short versus a long, um, but I do hold Apple. I think everybody knows that by now. I've been very vocal about Apple on Twitter, so uh, it's okay for me to say that. So I do hold Apple. I do buy stuff here and there. Like sometimes, if I see like Google's price is going down, went down below ninety, I did buy a few calls and stuff like that. So it's been very sporadic, you know. Um, this market has been very hard to trade. It, I mean, you guys know it better than me. It's been very hard to trade, especially with the zero DTEs and you know all the movement in the market. So I'm taking small positions here and there, but I, I do still like energy a little bit. I, I still think that there is some hope over there. I wouldn't say in everything, but in some of like the bigger names, I, I do like some of the bigger names. Yeah, I think everybody shared... Uh... You know, similar sentiment, kind of stay away from uh, tech. Markets of Mayhem told us the same thing at the beginning of the year. Um, and I I like how you mentioned, you know, the market's been difficult to trade. And a lot of what you're doing is just short-term thinking. Because if you look at uh, a daily chart, a lot of these price swings, March has honestly been good for traders because of that. Um, February was a little slower. We really traded sideways for most of the month. But it's very difficult Things become very difficult when you start to become bullish or bearish, right? When oh, yeah. you formulate that bias. And I 
love how you said, you know, I have a, a target of 3,400 uh, on the S&P, but you saw that the market was clearly oversold and, you know, you bought some stock for a trade. And that's that's really drawing the line between trading and investing and having long-term strategies, short-term strategies. And I think that's what everybody's trying to do. But yeah, a lot of what you were saying was making sense there. So before we get out of here, is there anything that you would recommend um, to young professionals, young entrepreneurs who are wanting to get into the market, maybe even take the same path that you did, really get more into banking, um, more into, I guess, the typical finance roles? Um, what advice would you give um, to, I guess, a younger Aisha, um, if you could go back and do so? Very interesting question. Um, I would tell a young person. Okay, so l let me just tell you a couple of things that did help me. Okay. Uh, first of all, reading. I like to read, as you can clearly see from all the books. <laughs> but believe me, this has helped me so much. You know, the ability to actually read the fine print and read reams and reams of documents and read reams and reams of financial statements. This has really helped me. It, it's given me an edge over a lot of people who don't like to read because I know a lot more and I can get a lot more information very quickly. The second thing I would say is don't be afraid to learn from anyone. Sure, you've been to college. Sure, you've done great at college or, you know, whatever. I mean, you might be super smart and most of us are super smart, but don't be afraid to learn from just anyone. It doesn't matter if that guy is, you know, younger than you. It doesn't matter if the guy, you know, is in a weaker position. You might be like in a higher position. It doesn't matter, right? Take the opportunity to learn from anyone and everyone, whatever you can. So if I see Noah's really good at trading energy, I'm going to sit with Noah and learn everything there is to learn about trading energy from him, you know? And if I see Alejandro knows, you know, how to read balance sheets inside out, I don't care. I don't care who he is. I'm going to sit with him and I'm going to learn. Alejandro does not know how to do that. <laughs> Disclaimer, nobody asked me for any, <laughs> for any info on how to read a balance sheet. I, I, I'll teach you, no worries. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but you know what I mean? So find what people do best and learn from that. And there is a knack to that. And that is study people as well. So not just reading, but study how people think and learn from the best. It doesn't matter who that person is, but everybody knows how to do one thing really well and pick up on that. And so then you have like a whole big, you know, skill set, learn from various kind of people and you're, you're, you'll be much better than the average person, right? Because you can apply everything. You can trade, you can, you know, learn fundamentals, you can do everything. So I think it's it, it's a good way um, to learn stuff and and you have to be alert. And the other thing I would say is finance, the finance world, it's not easy, particularly banking. It's cutthroat, okay? You can be emotional. Um, you can get hurt easily. You have to be tough. You, and... Because people will railroad you, people will walk over you. It's not an easy world to be in. Uh, people will fight you. People will take your clients. People will steal your clients. <laughs> They'll go behind your back. It, 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 it's a pretty nasty world out there. So toughen up. Nothing's ever going to be handed to you. 
toughen up, go get what you want, and, you know, learn, be better. That's what I would say. I love that. One more quick question. This is an area that, so you mentioned you read a lot. Obviously, you got all the books there you were talking about. Sure. Do you listen to audiobooks or do you find that the physical act of reading is the major benefit? Because I'm, I'm the type of person that can listen to an audiobook or a podcast all day long, but I don't find myself physically reading. I got a few books right there. <laughs> I have I have read those. I have read those, but I don't Good. find myself physically reading very often. Do you find that it makes a difference? I do think it makes a difference. Um, I think reading a physical book is much better because you retain a lot more. Maybe that's how my brain works, and, and maybe I'm old school. But I feel like when you ha- when you're physically reading something, or even like on an iPad it's still better and you know you're still following the words and you can still absorb more when you're listening to a podcast your mind is wandering right so unless you're actually sitting and listening like this it's very difficult and right. even then your mind is wandering because the act of reading means you have to focus on the words but while you're listening to something your mind can wander so I feel it's harder. I do listen to audiobooks, but the audiobooks that I listen to are mostly like, you know, let's say uh, either there'll be novels or they will be books that are like motivational books or, you know, those kind of books, which is, you know, stuff that, you know, helps you feel good. Um, because I still think it's important to listen to those once in a while as well. The world is crappy enough as it is, so it's good to listen to a couple of motivational books here and there. Um, so yeah, so I, I do think that you know reading physical books is 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 important, and and I don't mean just paper books, but as well like just actually reading as such. Yeah, that's a good point because when I'm listening to something, you know, maybe I'll be like making dinner, or I'm trading, or you know, I'm working on other stuff, so. I find myself a lot of the times I'll listen to, you know, five, 10 minutes of an audio book and I have to rewind the whole thing because I caught myself literally not paying attention to anything. So So for those times, so when you're doing something else, listen to a lighter book, you know, don't listen to something that's very intense, have like a mix and match of lighter books. And I'd say that for any time. So like at any one time, I'm, I'm reading two or three books together. And I do that because I I read like a novel and I'll read like a lighter book and then I will read like something that's very intense because it, it's hard. We have we have a busy day. We we are busy and you can't always concentrate on a hard book. So sometimes it's it's okay to switch between easier stuff. And when you're doing something, maybe it's a good idea for you to listen to something light. You know. Last thing, what are We'll do three books that you would recommend for new traders, investors, finance professionals, three must-reads that you feel have really helped you in your career. I would say The Misbehavior of Markets by Mandelbrot. I think that's that's a very important book to read. And it's a very fun book to read as well. It's, it's a good one. Um, I read a recent one, which was um, uh, The Lords of Easy Finance. That actually gives you a really nice uh, background on the Fed and what happened in the 80s and the 90s. So th- that that's a fairly new book, but it's a good one to read. I do like a lot of them that go into history and stuff like that. So, you know, 
the collapse of LDCM and those kind of books. So th- those are fun to read as well. Uh, but I think these two would be definitely the ones I would ask everybody to read. Awesome. I'll definitely have to check those out. I should thank you for joining us on the show. It was a pleasure. This was a lot of really solid information. I learned a lot. And again, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Alejandro. Our pleasure. Noah, another awesome episode. I'll see you next week for episode 68. Yep. Thanks again to Aisha. And we'll see you guys next time. Our content is intended to be used and must be used for informational purposes only. It is very important to do your own analysis before making any investment based on your own personal circumstances. You should take independent financial advice from a professional in connection with or independently research and verify any information that you find in our podcast and wish to rely upon, whether for the purpose of making an investment decision or otherwise.